Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Uh, before we get into the Word, uh, we're going to pray, but we're going to pray over our students. They're leaving Monday morning uh, to go to PA um, on a missions camp, and they're going to serve in the community. I think they're going to serve um, with the horses, stables, do the, the veggie garden, and a thrift store. Um, and so if all of the students, if you guys are going to camp, uh, Andy, Stacy, if you guys, Andrew, I don't know if you, all the leaders want to come up, uh, we're going to pray over you. Um, and so if you're a parent, if you want to come up and lay your hands on your students, let's, let's go ahead and have at it and ask the Lord to go before them and to just use this as a mighty way to make himself known uh, to these students as they serve the community, that they would grow deeper in their love for the Lord, the understanding of the gospel. And then the Lord would just do an incredible work um, this next week. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for your incredible mercy and grace that you've lavished on us. Lord, I thank you uh, for these students that you have blessed us with. Um, Lord, thank you for the work that you are doing in their lives and how you are calling them and stirring them and opening up their ears, their hearts, and their minds to the beauty and the wonderfulness of the gospel. Lord, thank you that they have the privilege of being able to go to camp and be able to serve and to grow in their walk with you and the understanding of you and also grow in community with one another. And I do pray, Lord, that it will be an incredible time, that you would use them in a mighty way, that you would draw them even closer to you, stir their affections for you. Lord, help them to grow closer to you, closer to one another, Lord. And I pray for our leaders. I pray for Andy, Stacy. I pray for Dee, Lord. I pray for Andrew as they're leading these students. Can you give them strength? Can you give them wisdom? And even can you give them excitement in the midst of this tiring week, Lord, that they would just faithfully point uh, these students to you, Lord Jesus, and who you are and what you've done. Be with them as they travel. I pray that you protect them. I pray that your name will be glorified, Lord. And we just, again, thank you so much for the ministry and the incredible work that the leaders are doing and what you're doing in the lives of these students. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. And God willing, when they get back, we will hear all what the Lord has done um, in them. And so if you have your Bibles... Let's, let's turn to, to John chapter 17. We're going to be in John chapter 17 as we continue our series through the gospel of John. Now, we're getting close to the climax of the gospel of John. Like in John chapter 17 verse 1, we're going to hear that the hour has come. Now, this phrase, the hour, if you really track this phrase, it kind of started back in chapter 2 when Jesus performed his first miracle. He told his mother that an hour has not yet come. And then in chapter 7 and in chapter 8, twice Jesus reiterated his hour had not yet come. And then in chapter 12, he kind of finally announces that the hour is near. And now finally we're in chapter 17 where the The hour has come. In other words, everything has taken place that was necessary has taken place for the hour to come. And the hour finally has arrived. And this is the hour that not just Jesus was preparing for, but the whole world, in a sense, was anticipating. 
because the hour was the fulfillment of the promise that God made back in the garden that he will send a rescuer to destroy the enemy and to buy back and to redeem and to save humanity from their sin. The moment everything will change where sinful creatures who are separated by their creator now will be restored and reconciled and enjoy fellowship with their creator once more. And at the climax of the hour, Jesus stops to pray. Like, in a sense, what's happening is he is standing in the doorway and he pauses, the doorway that's going to the cross, and he takes a moment and he cries out to the Father for help. And what we're going to see is two things in this prayer we're going to see. We're not going to do the whole chapter 17. We're going to see Jesus prays for himself, and then Jesus prays for his disciples. So let's look at John 17, verse 1. It says this, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you since you gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I've glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Now, if we have to be honest, you're probably wondering, like, what in the world is this text saying? Like, it is very profound, very deep, and in a sense, very confusing. But I think we can make light of this text if by asking the right questions. So what I'm going to do is, as we navigate through these five verses, we're going to ask questions and then try to answer the questions. And I do think by asking the right kind of questions, we'll be able to make sense of the passage. And so the very first question we have to ask is, Okay, Jesus is praying to the Father. What is he asking of the Father? And so the answer to that, if you're taking notes, the first thing that Jesus is asking for is Jesus prays for the Father to glorify him. So what is Jesus asking for? Glorify him. Which leads us now to the second question. If Jesus is asking the Father to glorify him, What does it mean for the Son to be glorified? Now, here's what we have to understand. When we talk about the glory of God and glorifying God, we need to remember that we're talking both of a noun and a verb. So the most easy way to understand it, that when we talk about the glory of God That is a noun, and it describes God's splendor, majesty, or better yet, a phrase I like to use, it is a display of God's goodness. So when we talk about the glory of God, that is a noun, and it means the display of God's goodness. And when we talk about glorifying God, that is a verb, which means that is the appropriate response of the divine goodness that has been display. So the glory of God, that is a noun. It is his divine goodness being displayed. Glorifying God, that is a verb, and that is an appropriate response to the divine goodness that was displayed. 
So when Jesus is telling the Father or asking the Father to glorify him, what does he mean by that? What he is saying is he means that Jesus' divine goodness must be clearly seen, acknowledged, and celebrated. And for God to answer this request, it means that the greatness of Jesus, his divine goodness must be clearly understood and also acknowledged. That's what Jesus is asking. Are you tracking with me? Okay. So Jesus is basically asking the Father, allow my divine goodness to be clearly seen and acknowledge and receive the appropriate response of worship. But now there's a third question. If that's what Jesus is asking, why would Jesus be asking for it? Because from our point of view, doesn't it seem like kind of a weird request? But here's the difficulty, and this is what Jesus is asking. When Jesus is asking at the appointed hour, for his divine goodness to be clearly seen and to be clearly celebrated, there's a difficulty because where is Jesus going? He's not going to a throne where clearly his divinity could be seen by all and he's sitting on the throne and everybody can worship him as king, but where's he going? He's going to the cross. And the cross is not only a symbol of torture, but it's also a symbol of displeasure and curse. Like the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 21 verse 23, it says, For anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. And the reason why the religious leaders wanted Jesus to be crucified is so that they could show the world that he is not from God, but he is cursed because the law tells us anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed, which means how can you be from God and yet cursed? The cross is a sign of God's displeasure. So, for the Father to glorify the Son who is going to the cross, who's going to become cursed and despised, God would somehow in some way to take this curse and turn it into praise, this rejection and displeasure, and turn it into acceptance. God will have to take this disgraceful association of the cross and make it a badge of honor for His Son, Jesus Christ. And how will he do it? Well, verse 5 kind of gives us a hint. Look at verse 5, the hint. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. In a sense, the Father will glorify the Son by restoring him to the position he had with the Father before the world even existed. And how does Jesus return to the Father after the cross? The resurrection. It is at the resurrection where, where Jesus' divine goodness is vindicated through the resurrection of after the cross where it displays his exaltation and one day will be celebrated at his consummation. That's why in Revelation uh, chapter 5, verse 12, they said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. 
And so the Father glorifies the Son. As the Son goes to the cross by restoring Him to the eternal position of glory He had with the Father before the world existed. And that is through the resurrection. So what is Jesus asking for? He's asking the Father for His divine goodness to be clearly seen on display and to be acknowledged as he's going to the cross and the way that God can do it through the complexity of the cross that is a sign of a curse and turns it into a badge of honor where Jesus will receive the glory that he's had before the world even existed as he returns to the Father is through the resurrection. Now another question we have to ask is why does Jesus ask the Father to glorify him? Well, look at verse 1. The first reason why he asked the Father to glorify him, verse 1 says this, the fa- Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that what? So that the Son may glorify you. So why does Jesus want to be glorified? So that he can glorify the Father. And what does it mean to, 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 to glorify the Father? It means to display the divine goodness of the Father. And who is Jesus? Jesus is the revelation of God. If you see him, you see the Father, which means he is a display of the divine goodness. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says he is the radiance of God's glory. Colossians 1 verse 15 says he is the image of the invisible God. John 1 verse 1 says he is the word of God. So when you see Jesus, you see a display of the divine goodness. And so when Jesus says, says, let my divine goodness be clearly seen, acknowledged, and celebrated so that you and your divine goodness will be seen and celebrated in the person of Jesus. And here's the second reason of why Jesus asked the Father to glorify him. Look at verse 2. It says, since you gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. In other words, Jesus desires to be glorified so he can do what? So he can secure eternal life. To who? Look at verse 2. To who? To those who have been given to him by the Father. So why does Jesus want to be glorified? So he can glorify the Father so that he can secure eternal life to those who have been given to him by the Father. And then in verse 3, he he defines eternal life. What is eternal life? Eternal life is not that you live forever, but verse 3 says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. So in other words, eternal life is a relationship with the everlasting God, is a forever delighting and enjoying the goodness of God. It is seeing God and rejoicing forever in His presence. It is a life that is restored with the Creator, living in community with the triune God. And so Jesus brings the Father glory by displaying the goodness of God and bringing rebellious creatures into an eternal relationship of enjoyment and delight with this good God. Now think about this. 
where does Jesus clearly display God's divine goodness, and where does Jesus secure eternal life for rebellious creatures? At the cross. It's at the cross where Jesus reveals God's divine goodness. At the cross, we see God's holiness and disdain towards sin. We see God's wrath and love. We see his justice and mercy. We see God's righteousness all clearly and perfectly displayed in the death of Jesus at the cross. And it is at the cross where Jesus secures eternal life. He brings rebellious creatures into an eternal relationship of enjoyment and delight with this good God. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin and died in our place, paid our penalty, satisfied God's wrath, redeemed and reconciled us to God and exchanged his righteousness for our unrighteousness. This is what Jesus is praying for. Glorify me, let my divine goodness be clearly seen, acknowledged and celebrated as I go to the cross. Because when I go to the cross, I am displaying your divine goodness and securing eternal life to all those that you have given me. And so what does that mean for us? It means that at the cross, he reveals the ultimate goodness. And how do we respond to this divine goodness? We respond to this divine goodness in worship. One of the things, and maybe I'm wrong, I feel like we might be missing. When we talk about God's goodness, most of the time, not all of the time, most of the time we don't think about the cross. Most of the time, we think about God's goodness and providing for us. But let me tell you, God is good in providing for us. I'm not saying that's wrong. But what I would like us to do is I would like to kind of change our, uh, our, our thinking, our, our paradigm. Then when we think about God's goodness most clearly displayed, we think about the cross. So in other words, when we say God is good, all the time he is good. What should we be thinking about? We should be thinking about the cross because what happened at the cross? He displayed his goodness in securing eternal salvation for us, eternal life for us. That means that when I lose my job or when I bury my child or something catastrophic has happened to me, I can continually to say God is good. Why? Because of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is why we as a people should be people of the cross and always go to the cross and look to the cross and point to the cross because no matter what happens in my life, God is good because he revealed his divine goodness in securing eternal life for me at the cross of Christ. And he displayed his goodness and this is what Jesus was praying for. And when we point, when we look to the cross, when we point others to the cross, we are in a sense, as the psalmist would say, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And how do you know the Lord is good? At the cross. 
After Jesus um, prays for himself, for the Father to glorify him, now he turns to his focus on praying for the disciples. Look at verse 6. I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given is from me because I have given them the words you gave me. They've received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They've believed that you sent me. I pray for them, and I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they are yours. Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Now let's stop here because, man, this passage is so profound. Like before Jesus is actually praying for his disciples and petitioning for his disciples, he in a sense as he's talking to God, to the Father, and the disciples are listening in, he's basically giving God the reasons for why he's praying for them and why the Lord should grant his requests. So again, if we want to understand the passage, if we ask the right questions and then try to answer the questions by looking at the text, we'll be able to make sense of this text. So here's a good question. Why is Jesus praying for his disciples and not for others? And why should the Father meet this request? And here's a truth that's repeated and I'm going to show you in this text. Think about and look at the text. How are the disciples being described? The disciples, and I'm going to show you in the text, are being described as being given to Jesus by the Father. Let me show you in the text. Look at verse 6. I've revealed your name to the people you did what? You gave me. Keep on reading from the world. They are what? They were yours and you had you gave them to me let's skip over to to verse 9 i pray for them i'm not praying for the world but for those you have given me because they are yours let's let, let's jump a little back look at verse 2 since you gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given me now this 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 phrase in verse 9 and verse 2 have given is in the perfect tense and what that means is a action happened in the past and has results in a continue in the present so in a sense in the past god gave these people to jesus who are his and they continue to be his now why did god give these people to jesus on what basis well we don't we know it's not on any merit of their own but somehow we know that in eternity past god gave these people to jesus this is why paul in ephesians 1 verse 4 tells the church in ephesus you were chosen before the foundations of the world Prior to this, the disciples and us were just called dead sinners by nature and by choice, rebelling against God. And somehow, by God's sovereign grace, he gives a people to Jesus. 
They belong to him. They are his. Now, I know for some of you, red flags are popping up, and I, and I can honestly tell you, I have no desire to preach some theological perspective. I only have a desire to preach the Word of God, and this is what we need to remain true. And the truth, what we see in the Word of God is that God gives His Son people. Jesus even says, I'm not praying for the world. Who's He praying for? He's praying for those the Father has given him. And on what basis did the Father give these people to Jesus? I have no idea other than on the basis of sovereign grace. And yet, we like to say, oh, I have a hard time with sovereign grace because what about the responsibility of man? But look at what the text says, that as God is working and giving people to his son, look at how the people are receiving and responding. Look at the responsibility of man here. Look at how they respond to the word. Look at verse 6. I've revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. And they did what? And they kept your word. Look at verse 8. Because I've given them the words you gave me, they received it and know for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you have sent me. So in a sense, what's happening is we can say that the disciples heard, they received, they acknowledged, they understood, they've believed, and they have kept. See, the sovereignty of God does not take away the responsibility of man, but what we have to understand is the order of it. Everything the disciples did is not on their initiative, but rather it is in response of what God has done. And this is what we have to understand. God is the great initiator. Why did the disciples keep the word? Who gave them the word? God did. How could the disciples believe in Jesus? Who sent Jesus? God did. The disciples belonged to Jesus, but who gave them to Jesus? God did. In other words, what Jesus is saying in his prayer, everything, God has initiated everything. He who began a good work in them is going to finish it as the disciples are responding and receiving and hearing and believing and keeping. And the point that Jesus is making before he's praying a special request for the disciples, basically the principle he is saying, what God has done for the disciples in the past guarantees what he is going to do for the disciples in the future. And now he presents his first request. And the very first thing he is asking the Father to do for his disciples, if you're taking notes, is to protect his disciples. Look at verse, the second part of verse 11 where it says, Holy Father. He says, Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction, so that the scriptures may be fulfilled. Now I'm coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may, so that may, so that they may have my joy completed in them. I've given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. 
And I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from this evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So the first thing Jesus prays for is for the disciples to be protected. If the disciples are saved by the power of God, they're given to the Son because of God's initiative. The Son by the cross has secured eternal salvation to them. What Jesus is praying for for the Father, in a sense, he is declaring that the disciples are protected or the disciples are kept by the very same power that saved them. Now, but notice this phrase. It doesn't say just say protect, but protect them by what? Look at verse, verse, verse 11. It says, Holy Father, protect them by your name. Protect them by your name. Which means God's name refers to his character, who he is, all the truth about who God is. So in a sense, when Jesus is asking the Father to protect them by his name, he is saying, basically, help them to cling to the truth that's been revealed to them. And what did Jesus do? Jesus continually says, I have given them your word. The word that you've given me, I have given them to you. I have taught them about who you are, the character and person of you. And if they are to faithfully follow me, they must cling to the truth of who you are, God. And so when Jesus is saying, in a sense, to the Father and protecting them, he is telling the Father, is asking the Father, help them not to fall away from the truth. And up to this point, Jesus, who is the truth, has been protecting them and guarding them from falling away, but now he is leaving to go back to the Father while keeping the disciples in the world. So he says, help them to cling to the truth. But in this passage, two things that this truth does. The very first thing this truth does, it creates unity. Look, look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, says this, Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. As the disciples submit to the word of God, as they cling to the truth of who God is, they now start to grow more and more in the same mind. Their thoughts, their desires, their intentions begin now to mirror God's. And what is one of the, the, the main characteristics of the Trinity? Unity. Just as the triune God is united, it will create a unity that is unfamiliar to this world. But the second thing that this, this truth does, not only does it create a unity, but it also allows them to experience joy. Look at verse 13. Now I'm coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. Think about the train of thought here and the profoundness. God the Father sends Jesus to reveal the truth about himself and does such a work in the disciples' heart that they receive the truth and embrace the truth. 
And by them embracing the truth, they're brought into the joy of Jesus. And now God keeps them from abandoning the truth and guarantees an eternal, satisfying joy in Jesus. Like, what incredible grace. He reveals truth. He keeps them in the truth. (laughs) And he gives them joy. Everlasting joy. God does the work from start to finish, and the disciples receive. They receive this incredible joy. Now, if Jesus is asking the Father to protect disciples, in other words, to help them cling to the truth, that means there has to be real dangers out there. And we see the real dangers in the text. Look at verse 14 and 15. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they're not of the world. Verse 15 says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. In other words, the danger in this world is that not only does the world hate you because of the truth, but you also have the evil one who wants to destroy you. And it seems like the more we cling to the truth, the more the world hates us, which means the temptation is for any relief in the world is to let go of the truth. And that is quite a temptation. And yet Jesus says, help them cling to the truth. Help them to know that God is holding on to them. He is the one protecting them. You see, if it was up to the disciples to cling to the truth, then it was absolutely useless for Jesus to pray for the Father to protect them. But because it's not up to the disciples, it's up to the Father as the Son is leaving them behind, knowing, believing, they belong to me, they are yours. And because they belong to me, because they are yours, because you've given me, it is guaranteed that he will protect them. And that is incredible truth for us today. Let's just be honest. How many of you fear that you are going to abandon the truth when things get really hard? Come on, let's just be honest. What does the Bible say? If you think you stand, lest you fall. We are living in a continuous hostile culture where it's becoming evident that the world will hate us because of the truth that we cling to. And the temptation of abandoning the truth is becoming real and more real. And yet the comfort we find in the text is that he is the one who's protecting us, who's helping us cling to the truth. And clinging to the truth is not this begrudging, oh my goodness, I gotta hold on to this truth. It's making life miserable. But what does Jesus says? What does this truth do? It creates unity among those who belong to God, which means we're one. We're in this together. You're not alone. And then it also creates a joy, an everlasting joy in Jesus Christ. And so as Jesus prays to the Father for the disciples to be, to, to be protected and to remain faithful to his word. Now, now the second thing he prays for the Father, and then we're, we're, we're done, is this, if you're taking notes, is to sanctify his disciples. Jesus prays for the Father to sanctify his disciples. 
Look at verse 17. It says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Now, the word sanctify means to be set aside, to be used for something special. So when God is saying, when, son, when Jesus is saying to the Father, sanctify these disciples, he is saying set them apart for the special plan and the special role that you have given them. And what is the special plan and the special role? To bear witness to the world. And when he says to sanctify them by the truth, it means that the Father will immerse them so much in the truth that they will receive the spirit of truth that will guide them in all the truth and the truth that they receive, the truth that's been revealed and the spirit that guides them in all this truth will strengthen them in the mission. And what we see is that the truth of God's word and the mission of God works hand in hand together. What makes them true to the mission? What gives them strength to continue in the mission and bearing witness of who Jesus is and what he's done? The truth. The word of God. And as they continue in the mission of God, the word of God becomes stronger. And as they hold true to the word of God, they're being strengthened in the mission of God. As we wrap it up here, We'll, we'll tackle the rest of uh, chapter 17 next week. Jesus' prayer, if you think about it, has it been answered, yes or no? It's been answered. It's been answered repeatedly throughout the centuries. At the cross, the Son of God was glorified, restored, because he clearly displayed God's divine goodness and he secured eternal salvation for those who've been given to him. And throughout the centuries, the Lord has protected those who've belonged to him, who's remained truth to his word. You know, if you study church history, you know how many heretical teachings and false doctrines and temptations have come into the church throughout the centuries to, to move the church away? More than we can mention. And even when it seems like the church is kind of going on the right side or on the left side or away from the truth, what is the Lord faithful in doing over the centuries? Keeping the disciples, protecting the disciples to hold on and cling to the truth and what that means for us is that as we study this prayer we can have confidence that he has answered this prayer and he will continue to answer the prayer even for us that God will help us keep faithful to his word and as we remain faithful to his word we will be faithful and strengthened to his mission to be his witness, to declare the glories of Christ to the rest of the world.
And for us, that should bring encouragement. But what instruction is there for us? That does not mean we sit on our hands and we say, well, God, you do all the work. I'm just going to sit here. No, because what does the text teach us? The text teaches us they received it, they understood it, they've believed it, they have kept it. So what's our instructions? Our instructions as the Lord is committed in protecting us because he has saved us is to continually to receive the word. How do we receive the word? We read it. We put ourselves under it. How do we understand the word? By continually studying it. How do we believe the word? By, by continually putting our confidence in the word. And we keep the word, trusting. What does the word do? The word is truth. It unites us. It brings us joy because the word is who God is and what he's done. And so the instructions for us, especially when we find ourselves in today's culture, it is more important than ever before for us to remain in the word. But the greatest struggle in today's culture is among Christians that are biblically illiterate. And if you're biblically illiterate, how can you hold on to the truth if you do not know the truth? It is so important for you to remain, to be in the Word, to understand the truth and to hold on to it even when we feel like we're being tossed by all these different waves of doctrine. The only way to remain in it as we fix our eyes on Him, as we cling to His Word, believing that what He says about Himself is true. And that's our instructions. That is our responsibility. And the good news of it is you are not alone. It is not you in the middle of the ocean clinging for dear life. The Lord has you. His power that have saved you will be the same power that will keep you. And as you hold on to him, he holds on to you. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for the incredible work that you've done for us. Oh, the power and the mystery of the cross where you've displayed your divine goodness and you secured eternal salvation, eternal life to those who belong to you how you have begun a good work and you've initiated the work and you are committed in finishing the work. Lord, help us to continually receive your word, believe your word, and keep your word. Continue to stir in us a greater affection for you. Lead us in all truth by your spirit. As we continue to pray, I just want to, I just want you to maybe to take a moment. First of all, just thank the Lord for the encouragement, his commitment in keeping you. And maybe even ask, ask the Lord to help you understand the gravity of that, that the Lord is committed in keeping you and protecting you in all truth.
And as you continue to pray, ask, maybe look to the cross and, and ask the Lord to help you to understand the significance of the cross, to see his divine goodness was, that was clearly displayed and the salvation he has accomplished for you. Ask the Lord that it will be more than just a phrase we say or something we look to or, or point to. But in a sense, it will become real where we see that Jesus died for me, a wretched sinner that deserved to be condemned, and yet he did not give me what I deserve. And then for some of you, maybe you don't believe in Jesus. Maybe you're wondering what the big deal is about Jesus. The reality of it is, you and us, you are rebelling against God. You've sinned. And there's no way that you can repay God with any good behavior because your sin deserves death because God is holy and righteous. And God in his mercy and grace sent his son to die in your place, to pay for your debt, your rebellion. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus lived a perfect life that you could not live, and he died a death you were supposed to die. And salvation can belong to you by believing in Jesus, trusting that the work that he has done for you is enough, and acknowledging the work that needed to be done for you, the grace that he's lavished on you. And so maybe this morning you're trusting him for the first time. You're looking to him as you recognize your need for a savior, that you've rebelled against God as the Holy Spirit is convicting you, opening up your eyes and helping you look to Christ. And so this morning, can you just ask the Lord, Lord, save me. I'm looking to you. I'm trusting you. Help me to receive. Help me to believe. Thank you for the price that you've paid. As we get ready to sit at the table, again, what does the table remind us of? The cross of Jesus Christ. This is why we end our services with the table, because it points us to the cross and the work that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And after it, as we've received it, we, we end in song as we respond to the goodness that was clearly displayed to us at the cross. And we thank him for that. And so as we get ready to, to distribute these elements, like, like what I want us to do is let's this, this focus on the cross and the wonderful divine goodness that was displayed at the cross, the salvation that he has secured for us, the price that he has paid for us the punishment that we deserve, that we did not receive. 
all because of God's initiating grace in our lives. Let's go ahead and distribute these elements as we meditate upon these truths. Did everybody receive the elements? As we come to the table and we hold up the elements, there's a question that that I always ask when I study um, Romans. How can a righteous God declare unrighteous people righteous and still remain righteous? In other words, how can God who is holy and just take wicked, rebellious people and make them righteous as if they've never sinned and God still remain good, holy, and just? The answer is the cross of Christ, his body given to us. Eat it in remembrance of him. His blood that was shed for us, that washed us as white as snow. The new covenant we have in him. Drink it in remembrance of him. Can you thank the Lord that he paid for your sin? That he declares you righteous? That he washed you as white as snow? That he made you new? He's taken your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. He took you who were dead in your trespasses and sins and made you alive in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. Would help us to trust in you, walk with you. Look to you, rejoice in you. Thank you for the work that you've done and the work that you're doing and the work that you're going to do. Thank you for the glorious promises that you have saved us and you will keep us by your power. Help us to walk in the truth. May we be sensitive to your spirit that leads us and guides us in all truth so that we may be united and continue in the everlasting joy we've received. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Can we stand and can we worship our Savior?